So if you're new, um, we're doing a series called Homesick. This is the last one. Uh, next Sunday, we're gonna grab uh, some theology from the book of Galatians. So if you've been wanting New Testament theology, next Sunday, we're gonna dive in. Galatians, brilliant book. Uh, you can read chapter four, that's where we'll be. Uh, homesick though, the last one, the home plate of homesick. Um, the big idea behind it is this. Not when life is bad, but when life is really good, it's still not enough. That there's an angst in us that says, is this it? At night when you're laying down or in the morning when you're waking up or driving your car, man, you got everything going for you and you still say, is this it? Isn't there more? It's because you and I were not designed for good. We were designed for brilliant. It's called the Garden of Eden where things were right and perfect and we were in God's presence and marriage was right and perfect and it was just brilliant. But then humanity and Adam and Eve sinned and we are exiled out of Eden and our hearts long to go back there, but we know we can't. The good news for believers is that's where we're headed. It's Revelation 21 and 22 called the garden city of New Jerusalem. And there's all these things that are just directly from Eden put there. We're in God's presence. The tree of life is there. Rivers flow there. There's shalom there. That's where we're headed. That's the good news. Those are the bookends of the Bible. The middle of it though is actually where we live. We don't live in Eden. We don't live in New Jerusalem. We live in Grants Pass or Murphy or Merlin or Cape Junction or somewhere. We live here. So how do we live well? That's been this series. And a massive portion of the Bible is to people who live in exile and their hearts are homesick for home. And so we just looked at these, these brilliant people, men and women who lived well in exile. And we're ending today in a guy who is one of my favorites. His name is Jeremiah. And to me, he gives the definitive word on how to dwell well in exile. It's brilliant. And first of all, what we're gonna get from him is the tendencies that believers have when we look at Babylon in exile and we kind of see the badness of Babylon, our tendency. So if you don't know Jeremiah, here's what happens. During his time, King Nebuchadnezzar comes, destroys Israel, swoops up a bunch of people and takes them back to Babylon where they live, All right? So that happens in Jeremiah's day. In chapter 28, there is a false prophet who begins to say, kind of play on the tendencies of believers to say, here's what you do. When you see how bad Babylon is, here's what you do. But then in chapter 29, God pushes back on our natural tendency. I think it's the way that we're actually supposed to live. Okay, so that's what we're gonna do. So first, chapter 28, here's the natural ten tendency. When we see Babylon, and its brokenness and its wickedness, that it's not the fruit of the spirit. It's not love, joy, peace, long suffering, meekness, tempers. You know, it's not that. Here's what we tend to do. So chapter 28, verse one. In the same year, this is Hananiah, the false prophet, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon spoke to me in the house of Yahweh in the presence of the priests and all the people saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, 
I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Here's what he's saying to the exiles who had been taken from their home and put in this bad place called Babylon. Hey, we're getting out. We're getting out of bad Babylon. Don't worry about that place. Let it go to hell in a handbasket. We are out of here. Isn't that a tendency in people? Isn't that a tendency in you and me? When we look at our culture and we compare it to what we think it should be, isn't there a tendency to be like, I just want out of here. I just want out of here. I'm pulling my family, I'm pulling my kids, I'm pulling my finances. I just want out of this culture. So Thursday morning when I was outlining this, I just jumped on Google News to be reminded of Babylon, how crazy things are. I just wrote down a couple of the top articles. Listen to these. So the first one was this. Canada, first industrialized nation to legalize recreational marijuana. You know what that's called? Canadian bacon. Isn't that so bad? Oh, I loved it. I just cracked myself up with that one. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> a few of you are like, what? Oh, that is good. <laughs> Here's another one. Putin. Russians will go to heaven in event of nuclear war. There's a silver lining in nuclear holocaust. That's nutty. How about this one? Americans to spend half a billion on Halloween costumes for their pets. That's our culture. Half a billion dollars on costumes for pets. You solve the malaria problem in Africa with half a billion dollars. Whew. Okay, right after that was this one. Owner of emotional support squirrel kicked off a plane. Did you guys see that one? Oh, that's so good. And then they had it linked to this one. Man dies after eating squirrel brains. Not sure. Jesus come quickly. Um, traffic accidents rising in states where pot has been legalized. Okay. My daughters are driving now in a war zone, I guess. Uh, and then here's the last one. Portland. Man attacks pickup with power tools as owner sits inside. Makes me so glad to live in Grants Pass. They are keeping Portland weird. Man, they're just doing it up there. Okay, so I get it. I get the Hananiah tendency. Like, we just gotta get out of this place. And if you read the history of the church, there's been cycles of this. There's a term for it now. It's called church cocooning. It's where the church just says, that's Babylon so we're gonna build this cocoon kind of around ourselves. And so from now on, we're gonna do homeschooling. 
and we're gonna do home businesses and we're gonna have home church and home birth and family worship and courtship and we're gonna reject kind of any organized sports event because my kids might be around a bad kid. So we're not gonna do that. The only sport we'll do is ultimate Frisbee after Sunday church and it can't be organized because that would be bad, right? Single groups are bad. And I get that. There's this whole idea like we are gonna build a cocoon around ourselves because I see how bad Babylon is. And then the next step is shunning believers that don't agree. Like, you don't agree with me. So you know what? I can't hang out with you as well. It's called cocooning. It's a very common thing. And I get that. I look at the culture, I read the news and I think, man, maybe that's, maybe that's the best option. And if we don't cocoon, we do this. We create Christian culture, which is the next step, which is saying, okay, so Babylon is rated R. We're gonna create a Christian culture that's just PG. So we're gonna make our own movies and our own music. We're gonna make our own books. We're gonna make our own cars, right? What would Jesus drive? WWJD. It's a Model T, you know, the cross. Totally Model T. And then we're gonna make our own theme parks. Just Google Jesus Land. It's a, it's a Christian-themed theme park, right? Instead of Disneyland, you go to Jesus Land. You can ride the whipping post. Be lashed 39 times. <laughs> The resurrection roller coaster, so fast you'll wish you were dead. I mean, these are serious things. Re- Google Ave Maria. It's an entire chunk of land that a Christian business dude bought and he's building a city. And to live there, you have to say, okay, I, I will do these things and I won't do these things. It's just, it's Christian culture, right? So if we don't cocoon, then we're at least saying, well, we got to build our own little culture here. And then the third level to that is where our church says, okay, from now on, we're going to try to capture everything that people need to do inside the four walls of a church. So in our church, we'll build a restaurant and a coffee shop and a bookstore and a movie theater. Because if we go out there and we're next to people, we might catch the sinnies. Like all of a sudden, ah, I got, I'm a sinner now, right? And honestly, I, I kind of make fun of it, but there's a part of me that says, I get that because I read about Babylon all the time. And I deal with people that, that deal with Babylon all the time. And I see the repercussions of it. And we can even develop theologies that say this, a theology that says, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna be out of here. Just let that place go to hell in a handbasket because we're out of here. And we develop theologies about it. And I get all that. I feel that tendency in me. It's just like chapter 28. We're out of here. The only problem with that is, if you keep reading this chapter, God says, it's not gonna be two years. You're gonna be there for 70 years. You're gonna be there for your whole life. You're gonna spend your whole life in Babylon. And in chapter 29, God says, because of that, here's how I want you to live. And it's brilliant. Look at this. It pushes me in ways, maybe I don't wanna be pushed, but it's healthy. Chapter 29, verse one. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet, he's the real prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and of Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, whew. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. The first thing God says to him is this, I put you there. I put you in that Babylonian city. You're my missionary. I sent you there. Verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Here's what God says. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Doesn't say cocoon yourself or create your own culture or run and hide in a cave. He tells them to do three things. And I think these same three things as believers, looking back on how they dealt with Babylon, we can learn from them. Because I think they're the same three things we should be doing. Number one, invest. Look at verse five. Build houses. What were they probably doing? If God has to tell them to build houses, what were they probably living in? Tents. Why? We're here for two years, who cares? Most likely they lived in a refugee camp right outside of the walls of Babylon and they were just commuting into the city. Like, we're gonna be out here. We'll stay in our tents. It's just two years and we're out of here. God says, no, it's gonna be 70. So build a house. Because that Coleman tent might last for two years but it won't last for 70. Invest, plant gardens, start making the city better by planting gardens. Eat, invest in it, because you're dying there. I was thinking about this about 10 days ago. Um, we have some new kids in our house, and one of them, uh, his name is Jackson. He's a three-year-old, and he's in Head Start, so he's been having some struggles there, which is totally understandable. He's been bounced around for three years. He doesn't, know where, he doesn't know where center is. So we're trying to help him get centered. So I went to his class about a half an hour before it got over to just hang out with him. And I got there at 11.30, they're eating lunch. So I sat down and uh, Angela, his teacher's like, sit down and have lunch with us. I'm okay, okay, great. And Jackson was so happy. He's like, this is my mat. This is my mat. He is my mat. Here's my mat. This is my mat. Okay, All right? And then he starts starting to feed me. Which is, which is for him is take a bite of a chicken bone, you know, like a, a drumstick and then hand it to me, which is like, are we doing this? And all the kids are watching me. You gonna eat that? You gonna eat that? Well, I guess we're doing this. Just not the part that his nose touched. Everything else, but that part, right? So I'm just eating there and, and there's these little girls sitting around and I'm asking them questions. What's your name? Do you have any brothers? You know, just laugh, having a great time. And then about 10 minutes into it, this little girl, she looks at me. 
She said, what's your name? I said, Matt. I'd already introduced myself. And she was testing me because then she said this. She just did this. What's my name? What, the big test. Do I matter to you? That's really what she's asking. Do you remember who I am? What's my name? And so I looked at her and I said, your name is Kaya. Man, biggest smile in the world. On my face, because I remembered. Like, Thank you, Jesus. Woo, I got it right. Huh? I was kind of wondering there. <laughs> right? And she just glued herself to me and Jackson for the rest of the time. We're like playing with her. It was awesome. And I grabbed Jackson. We're walking out. And I walked by and there's this plaque I'd never seen it before. And it's this plaque and it was this building, the Head Start building there at RCC. This building was made possible and it started listing the people, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation. And then just all these names of people, just people in Grants Pass. And I thought as I read that, how many of those are believers? How many believers in Grants Pass say, I wanna invest in my city. I wanna invest in kids that maybe don't have the same opportunities that other kids. And I'm gonna put my money where my mouth is. I'm investing in that. Or do we cocoon with our finances? Do we invest in our city? Are we building it? Is it better because of us, right? And I realize that a lot of investment isn't just bricks and mortar. And I've got crazy ideas. I know that when it comes to trying to invest in our city. You guys know whatever it was four years ago when we were talking about this or three years ago. I had this idea that, that we buy these 15 passenger vans. Remember that? We put a bunch of video cameras in them. We paint them up with like, you know, drug enforcement or whatever. We're watching you. And then we park them outside of the five known drug houses in Grants Pass and just park them there. We're watching you. And when people come and buy drugs, sometimes we just follow them to see where they go and say, we're watching you, right? That was my idea. I thought it was brilliant. No one else did. So I get, I get weird ideas, totally. I actually called Bill Landis, our police chief on that one. Like I thought it was so good. I'm like, he'll love this. So I just called him, I, I just, you know, just laid it open for him like this. I said, hey, my name's Matt Heverly. I'm with Edgewater. And we're trying to find out how, how we can help change Grants Pass. What's the one thing you think we can do to change Grants Pass? And this was his answer. He goes, well, it'd be great if you guys like did a lunch downtown, maybe once a, once a, once a week in downtown. I said, how about drug vans in front of drug houses with cameras and websites and we follow them? He just went, oh no, someone will die. <laughs> so even he thought it was a dumb idea. So I get crazy ideas, I get that. But it's because... I love my city. It's because I want to invest in it, because I want to see our city change. That's why I have my crazy ideas, right? So I walked with the COV guys a, uh, a couple of months ago. It was about six months ago. And I said, you know, Church of the Valley, it's, it's the, the, all the churches, all people that love Jesus say, hey, we kind of belong together. And because we belong together, we can actually have fellowship and we can put, a, put the second stuff away and concentrate on the first stuff, Jesus right? So it's, it's a good thing. And what I said to him, I said, we have to be known if we're going to be an actually an impacting thing in Grants Pass, we can't be just known for one weekend a year where we meet, hey man, yeah, where we just meet somewhere. I mean, it's, it's interesting, it's novel, whatever, but we're not changing Grants Pass by that. So I said, what if, what if we said to the 10,000 people that name the name of Jesus and actually attend church 
even grants passed. What if we said to them, we're gonna change the schools? We're gonna change the schools. And so we got a meeting with District 7. District 7, all the high ups in District 7. And we sat with them and they just said, wide open door to you. We would love that. We would love to have help. We'd love for you guys to be involved in our schools. But whenever you work with a bunch of different churches, the speed at which you can move is not too fast. It's like herding cats, right? You get one through and five come out. So it's like, and I know that's a process, but I just think, I keep thinking to myself, we change grants past that way. Like there's these studies and they keep doing them over and over to see if they're wrong. And they keep saying the same thing that a child and reading is huge. That in the first and second grade, if a child does not learn to read, they peg themselves as stupid. And then that echoes through the rest of their school and their life. Maybe because they didn't have help, maybe because they're dyslexic, maybe there's some other issue, but because there's not enough help because schools are overcrowded right now. There's 40 kids in a, in a class, all right? And there can be kids that slip through. I know that in Fruitdale, I've talked to people, right? And they found that if, if a reading assistant will come in with a first grader or a second grader and just sit with them once, twice a week for an hour, just teach them to read. The echoes of that go through their whole school and life as well. I'm not stupid. I am smart. I can read. I'm good at this. Man, I think, what if, we, what if the church has said, that's gonna be our job? And I say, big church, big C church, Church of Grants Pass. What if we said that? That we're gonna jump in with every elementary school in Josephine County, and our whole goal is, get kids to read. Man, would we make Grants Pass shine if we did that? Would we become a city set on a hill? And they say this, if they ask you about Jesus or why you do this, guess what? You can tell them. You become a missionary inside of schools able to share Jesus there. Man, would we make Grants Pass shine if we did that? I think so. It's investing, right? And I had this other crazy idea uh, about helping young people buy homes. I think that's one of the ways that any studies as well, like one of the ways that you rocket boost a young couple is getting them into a home. So they're not paying rent anymore. They're building equity. But sometimes it's hard for young people to buy homes. And what if we started this, this thing where we say, we're gonna help Edgewater young people buy homes. That's what we're gonna do. And uh, that's my idea. And I have visions of things, but I don't know like the nuts and molts of it. And so I met with some people that actually do. And they said, this could work. If you get a young couple that actually wants to partner with it and they, they get with some mentors and they start budgeting and they show that they can put money aside and they kind of prove through a year process, hey, we're in, skin in the game, we'll do this. And you get investors and you make it so the investors can't lose money. They're not gonna make a great amount of money, but they won't lose money. She said, there are people that would do that. I've already talked to investors that said, we'd do that to rocket boost young couples. I think, if, if that gets out and the church, because they love Jesus, wants to rocket boost young couples so they can build equity and become kingdom builders themselves. Man, does that make Jesus shine? Does it make him beautiful? Man, I think so. It's investing. And how you invest is gonna be individual. I can't tell everybody how to invest. I have my own weird ideas and ways of doing it. Foster care, save families, no doubt. I have my way but I think that every single one of us 
that knows Jesus and has been made wealthy by his work in our lives, we should be saying, how do I pay that forward? How do I become a conduit of his love? How do I be a conduit of these things? Maybe it's retirement homes. Maybe it's helping widows. Maybe it's reading programs. I don't know. Maybe it's hall monitors. I don't know. But each of us, I think, is called at some level, the verse five, invest. Invest. Number two, verse six. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Number two, increase in that city. Don't move into Babylon and become Babylonian. Move into Babylon and increase as God's people. We're called as believers in Jesus Christ with a great commission that says, go into all the world, teach the gospel, make disciples, baptize. We're called to increase. That's what we're called to do. I think the Achilles heel of the, of the church today, I keep saying this, is our desire to be accepted by Babylon. For Babylon to say, oh, you guys are cool. You guys are awesome. I don't think we're ever supposed to be accepted by Babylon. That we should always be a distinct people that have ways of doing life that look very different from Babylon while we're inside and interacting with Babylon. But how we do business and how we care for our kids and how we do our marriages, all those things should look distinct from Babylon. And when we pine for Babylon's acceptance, what happens is we lose all of our relevance. That what makes Christianity awesome, beautiful, attractive, is not saying, hey, we're just like you, Babylon. What makes us brilliant and beautiful is Jesus. And we keep sharing with people, Jesus, he's the king and he has come. And what we offer to you is reconciliation to the Father, forgiveness of sins. We offer to you a purpose in this life and one that extends into eternity. We offer you, let not your heart be troubled. He's going to prepare a place for us. We offer you peace that passes understanding, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what we offer. And we keep saying those things, not, hey, we're trying to be just like you. It's we keep offering the good news. Paul put it like this. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation. I'm not ashamed to tell people, man, I want people to get saved. I want to introduce them to my king. I want them to know Jesus. I have no shame in that. That's my goal. I found Treasure Island and I wanna invite everybody else onto it. Come, this is the way to live life. We're supposed to increase. Not become Babylonian, but become Christians inside of Babylon increasing, number two. And then thirdly, maybe most important for us is verse seven. It says this, but seek the welfare of the city. Does anyone have a different translation? Peace, much better. I love the ESV. Here, I think they made a mistake. It's the word it's used three times. It's the word shalom. Shalom is almost every other place in the Bible translated peace. Somehow they're trying to make something happen here. I don't think it's right. It's seek the shalom, the peace of that city. 
Pray to Yahweh for it because in its peace, you shall have peace or shalom. We are supposed to be people that go out from church and go out from our homes becoming those that seek the peace of our city. And I don't know if it's just me and I'm getting old and weird, but it seems like there is more strife and more violence and more anger and less peace in our world than I've ever seen in my life. I I read the news about what's happening in Portland and it's like, it's heartbreaking to me. It feels like the seventh grade when there was like a fight and everyone would be like, you know, fight, come on, come on, punch the guy, right? Just like, just egging it on. I'm like, where are the adults now? What happened to the adults? And here's what I think has happened. Um, if you ever read, uh, has anyone here ever read Plato's Republic? Hey, if you wanna fall asleep, read Plato's Republic. But in it, there's this story, it's called the Ring of Gyges. And what it is, is this shepherd who seems like a normal guy. He goes to this, this cave because there's an earthquake and inside the cave, he finds a ring. When he puts the ring on, he disappears. So Tolkien stole it. Great authors always steal things, right? And, and at first it's a parlor trick. He's like, hey, look, I disappear. But then he realizes something. When I disappear, I can do whatever I want. And he becomes wicked, wicked, seduces the queen, kills the king, and sends that culture into a spiral of evil. Why? Because he could get away with it. To me, the ring of Gyges now is like these, these groups that clothe themselves in an ideology or a cause or something. And because they have this ideology or a cause, then it means they can do whatever they want to people. It's like, no, I have this cause, I have this ideology. And because I have that now, I can punch you in the face or cuss you out at a stop sign. It's weird. And it's not just on the right or left, it's everywhere. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we're not supposed to do that. The Bible says this, love your enemy, the one that wants to persecute you and beat you and kill you. The Bible says your response to them is not hatred. Your response to them is not cussing. Your response to them is not violence. Your response is love. We're supposed to be pursuing the peace of our city. Jesus put it like this. It's Matthew chapter five, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons. It's the Greek word huios, the adult, mature, inheritance-receiving people of God. When are we called that? When we're seeking the peace of our city. That's what we're supposed to do. And when a group of people starts to do that, you can change a city. Right? That's what this verse just says. If you're seeking the peace of that city, when it finds peace, you get peace back. It's like this beautiful circle of peace, of shalom, of goodness. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And it works. Here's the best example I have. Uh, His name is Gordon Wilson. Google him. He's a phenomenal individual. He is credited with stopping the war between the IRA, the Ireland Republican Army, in Great Britain. And that war depends on who you read. 
either went 25 years before he started it or actually went back to the 1910s. I think the 1910s is actually more accurate. And if you don't know about that, it is a massive thing. So U2's song, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, is the IRA, Great Britain War. Cranberries, their famous song, Zombie, is based on that same thing. This, this, way, this war between these two groups. Brutal, bad, terrible, right? He's the guy that put a stop to it. Here's how it happened. 8th of November, 1987. He is walking down the streets of Belfast, hand in hand with his daughter. The IRA had planted a bomb inside of a building. It blew apart. That building fell on his daughter and killed her. And the way that he responded changed Ireland. Listen to this. I'll read it for you. And you can Google him. He's a good one. Hours later, so this is fresh. His daughter has just died. In an interview with the BBC, Wilson described with anguish his last conversation with his daughter and his feeling toward her killers. Quote, she held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet. She's dead. She's in heaven and we shall meet again. And I will pray for these men tonight and every night, end quote. Historian Jonathan Bardone says, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. One peacemaker who said, I'm not responding the way that I feel like I should respond. I'm gonna respond to make peace. Changes the nation. We're called to seek the peace of our city. We're called to be that. And it, and, it, and it begins inside of us. Like who in here wants peace, right? No one's like, you know, I prefer, you know, bitterness and anger and anguish. No, we all want it. And, and what it says right here is when you become a peacemaker, the city becomes peaceful and then you get back peace. It's brilliant. And it begins not with Gordon Wilson kind of events, which rarely happen. It begins when I say for myself and my marriage, I'm gonna be the peacemaker in my marriage. I'm gonna make sure that I live in shalom with my wife. It's when I say of myself, I'm gonna make sure I'm the peacemaker with my kids. It's, it's making sure when I go home to my neighborhood, I'm gonna be the peacemaker in my neighborhood. It's saying, I'm gonna go to work and my goal is to be the peacemaker at my job. It's when I get in my car and I go to drive into town, I say, I'm gonna drive for peace, which is a super hard one for me. I wanna make peace. Normally I wanna pass people. I'm gonna make peace. And what happens when a people begin to say that? I'm just, I, I, it's not about me, not about me getting my thing. It's about me saying, I'm gonna be a peacemaker wherever I am at. What happens is the climate changes. 
It becomes the climate, a climate of shalom, a climate of peace in your neighborhood, in your own heart. That's what happens. It works. Invest, increase, and seek the peace of your city. And we get to come to the table today. And when we come to the table, here's what we're saying. One of the things we're saying. We're saying as we take the cup and the bread, what we're saying is, we want more of you, Jesus. I know by myself, I'll leave these walls, leave this place, wake up tomorrow morning, and I won't have peace in my heart, and I won't make peace at work, and I won't be the peacekeeper in my family. I know that. So Jesus, I need your nature. I need your strength. I need your power. Flow through me. Help me to be a branch connected to your life-giving peace because you're the Prince of Peace. And you say, Jesus, today, prune away from me the bitterness and the anger and the anxiety and the worry that leads me to not have peace and fill me with your spirit and your power and your shalom and your love so I can be a conduit for that. That's what you're doing when you take communion. I want your nature. And that's why we do it so often. We're coming back and we're being reminded every Sunday, Jesus, I need your nature. I need you. So Jesus, this day, may we dwell well in Grants Pass, in Rogue River, in Murphy, in Selma, in Cave Junction, in Merlin, in Sunny Valley, in Wolf Creek. May we dwell well. May we be investing the talents that you've given to us. May we be increasing, sharing the good news and seeing souls saved. And may we be seeking the peace of our cities. And so as we come to your table, we come hungry, needy, empty, wanting to be full of you so we could be the peacemakers, the increasers, the investors in our cities. So fill us and send us out as an army, an army of peacemakers. And we ask this in your name, amen.